Before we start, I have a quick word from this episode's sponsor. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas invites artists to apply for the Fall 2024 Masters of Fine Arts program in art. UNLV's three-year fully funded program with an emphasis on creative practice offers 24-hour access to private studios, graduate assistantship funding, and opportunities to engage with a dynamic roster of visiting artists, all within the unique context of Las Vegas. We welcome artists from diverse backgrounds who want to participate in the dialogues within contemporary art and culture through art making and exhibition to apply by February 1st, 2024. Visit unlv.edu art to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well. We are on the second episode of this fall season, this time with Noelle Garcia. Based in the Chicago area, Noelle is an artist and educator who focuses on themes of identity, family history, and recovered narratives in her work. She is an indigenous artist from the Klamath and Paiute tribes. She earned her Bachelor of Fine Arts from the School of Art Institute of Chicago and her Master's of Fine Art from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Noel has earned awards and fellowships at various institutions such as the Smithsonian National Museum of American Indian, the Nevada Arts Council, the Illinois Arts Council, and the American Indian Graduate Center. I had a good time re-listening to our conversation as we discussed how motherhood informed Noel's beadwork, the ownership of stories, and deciding who to sell one's trauma to. As usual, relax and I hope you enjoy this. Definitely less, <laughs> less stressful. And it's because I, I only teach at night. So I, you know, do my full time job in the day. Like there's something kind of romantic about leaving the art building at night when you can see yeah. like the stars and there's no one else around. And I, I really love it. But where, where, where do you teach? Um, I teach full time at National Lewis University. Okay. The predominant population of the school is like first generation college students. Okay. And a lot of the like majority of students, I want to say like 70% are Latinx students. Mm-hmm. And then and then black students and a very small amount of like white and Asian students. I like working with the student population at National Lewis University because it's really familiar. Um, like there's lots of crossover uh, with cultural habits uh, with Latinx students as there is with indigenous. So yeah. with indigenous students, like, uh, like for example, like nervousness uh, or shyness um, when it comes to speaking to the teacher or asking questions or like having opposing thoughts yeah, from, yeah, you know, yeah. what, what's being stated. And so like we, we work really well. We have good chemistry, the student population um, there. A few years ago, we decided to change the art appreciation course. It's, you know, your standard art appreciation course into a course called Art 105, Race, Identity, and Ethnicity in American Art. Uh-huh. 
And so I, I wrote the course from scratch and it was really hard because I understood that, you know, this is going to be the only art class that some students are going to take for their entire lives. So I have to do some art right. appreciation type things. But then mm-hmm. also, like, we need to be critical about um, representation in American art and, like, kind of the history of it over time. So it's like I'm jamming in all of this, like, yeah. American history, like, CRT, art appreciation into this one course. Yeah. But I'm really proud of it. And it goes over really well. It's been running for like two and a half years now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, if you if we can hold that thought, because I would like to go back to there. But I first want to kind of talk about, um, you know, how did you get into the arts? And then also you were talking about it's knowledge that you've accumulated through the people around you. And so, you know, could you talk a little bit also about, you know, where you grew up and how you kind of incorporated those things um, into early on from your art career? Yeah. So I, I grew up in the Reno, Nevada area. And you know, as, as a kid, my life was pretty unstable. My mom had really serious health conditions and, and was frequently hospitalized. And I, my dad was incarcerated. And when I was little, I, I never knew why. Um, it just didn't seem, it didn't seem not normal because that was my normal. So my dad was incarcerated and he would always send me uh, drawings in the mail. He, you know, when I couldn't read, he'd just send me a drawing. And it would be of things that I like, like, hmm. you know, a Disney princess or like an eagle feather, or he'd like make little collages out of magazines with um, like dolls in them or like weird Christian scriptures. Okay. <laughs> and uh, like, I, I kind of interpreted it as an expression of love or, you know, affection. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, every once in a while, he'd get out on parole. And back in the day when I uh, used to get bills in the mail, you'd get like that, uh, I don't know what it's called. It it has like some sort of charged ink on it. It was it was to make copies more efficient. It was kind of the same thing. It was a transfer paper type situation. Okay, okay. And so when we got the bills, he he'd tear off the transfer paper and he showed me that if you pressed it down on a piece of paper and drew on the back side of the transfer paper, it would transfer your drawing right, right, right. to the paper. And I thought, like, that is in, that, like my mind was blown. So like that's... This is like carbon paper, right? Yeah, that's exactly... I think that's the, the right term for it. So we uh, exchange drawings uh, with each other from afar. And so because uh, both parents weren't there, uh, a lot of the time, the majority of my youth, I, I grew up with a lady I called Grandma Margaret. She wasn't really my grandma. And I didn't quite figure out our relationship. But she took care of you. Yeah, she took care of me. She lived on um, something called the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, which is an urban reservation Okay. for uh, Shoshone, Washoe, and Paiute people, which are tribes indigenous to northern Nevada. And so, you know, I I learned to speak a, a few words. I remember Grandma teaching me how to do bead weaving on a loom. Okay. And when I was really young maybe like five or something like that. And I absolutely hated it. I was like, why would anyone use these beads? Because it takes freaking forever. But it was kind of, that's what you did in indigenous communities. It's kind of like, if not your main job, it's your side hustle, especially for women is to sell beadwork. So you have your full-time job. And in order to make ends meet, you sell the beadwork. And, and, you know, there's a history of that since the American Indian Arts and Crafts Movement or law, American Indian Arts and Crafts Law, where the government was trying to push uh, Native Americans into participating more in, in the economy uh, with money rather than with sustenance or, or trade. So, yeah, eventually uh, my mom kind of got a little more self-sufficient and just picked us up and moved us all down to Las Vegas. How old were you at this point? 
I think it was like around 10. Okay. It's like a lot of changes happening. Yeah. Um, totally weird. It, when we moved to Las Vegas, I remember kind of realizing that like I wasn't in a, a comfortable, like I wasn't in a native community anymore. Like I was, I was with white people and they didn't understand that I was indigenous native. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, you know what? I think, I think I'm going to be Asian. Okay. Because <laughs> I have like hooded eyes. Like, yeah. like it's, you know, like really ridiculous thought process of the kid. Like, Asians, yeah, for 10 year old. Yeah. 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 Asians like aren't like my dad in prison and they're not like the drunks I see on the sidewalk mm. um, on the reservation. And I'm just going to be like Asian. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long did that last? <laughs> It lasted. Um, it, it lasted for a while, and I'm like, I was committed. Like, I took several years of Japanese. Like, I I made sure to like research my Japanese art. So you speak Japanese? I well, it's been a while. I speak like maybe conversational Japanese. I could probably. It's hard. It's a hard language. Like three different alphabets, and you've got the uh, different hierarchies of. You know, it's really yeah. It's hard. The thing I had a hard time with was the sentence structure, and I never got my kanji down. I I could still write my hiragana and katakana, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like later in life when I'm trying to like relearn my languages. I'm like, whoa, Paiyu is so much like Japanese, like the pattern of vowels and consonants, and like some of the words sound so similar. And I I kind of like love it. I'm like, thank God I I took that much Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be it would be harder to relearn my language <laughs> there's there's always links in everything that you do i feel like there's never learning is never a bad thing so yeah so i guess so you moved to las vegas and i know you ended up going to get your bfa at school of art institute of chicago so how did that happen? Like, you know, how, you know, you're trading drawings with your dad and you're learning beadwork uh, from your, you know, your adopted grandmother. And how did that sort of transform into an actual pursuit of possible career or maybe uh, actual full-blown interest in it at a university? Yeah. So when I was in Las Vegas, I was fortunate to, in high school, go to something called LVA, Las Vegas Arts Academy. Mm-hmm. And um, it was... What, a magnet school. So school was really long and it was rigorous. And if you entered in as a visual arts major, you kind of got what was the co- equivalent to like, or similar to like an undergraduate yeah. education in art. So, you know, I went there and I got, you know, AP credits and kind of got a head start in art. And, um, you know, they, they send recruiters through from art schools. And, and one of the recruiters that came through was from the school, the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm. And they came in and they gave us some tests on like quizzes, like they'd show artwork and be like, who knows who it is? And like, I won every round. Like at that time, I was like really obsessed with Grant Wood. And uh, what's that guy's name that did Nighthawks? It's not Grant Wood. It's Edward Hopper. Yeah, Edward Hopper. As I've gotten older, like I don't like those artworks the same. But at the time, like (laughs) my, my, (laughs) my, my taste for art was like really literal. Like, and I like uh, narrative art. And I think those artworks do a really good job at like telling a story and like communicating a feeling. Uh, So the SAC offered me some like waivers to apply for their school. And, um, and so I was just like, Hey, like, heck, let's go. I know this is, you know, like the top three art school in the country. I've got like a little bit of financial support here. Let's, let's do it. And I remember when going there, like being absolutely, absolutely astonished how like no one could really draw. <laughs> None of really? The really? The teachers didn't focus on drawing. None of the students can draw. Like teachers even kind of got frustrated with me when I present 
like well-drawn like figurative art and they'd get even more frustrated like when i would draw figurative art based on photographs as opposed to what live you mean like live drawing i think um i think saic prizes more ideas over technique Mm. which is fine but i think you know had i known that when i was a younger person i i don't know if it would have been my first choice but you know Mm. if i hadn't I, i wouldn't be where i am yeah 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 but i also when I was younger and we'd visit my dad in prison, they'd always take photos of us in the prison visiting yard. Mm -hmm. And there was like another inmate there and if you paid him a dollar, he'd take like a Polaroid photo of you. Okay. So all of my family portraits are like these really lovely Polaroid photos of uh, us smiling with like chain link fence in the background. (laughs) You never did anything with that? That's what I, that's what I was obsessed with. I, I just dreamed up constantly. So like, I like kept drawing them over and over again. And I didn't really understand why it was so important. And I didn't really have vocabulary. And I remember just coming there and being like, absolutely shocked too, by like, how knowledgeable the students were, like how impressive their academic vocabulary was. And me with my like, not yeah and i was like i don't belong here i'm not like smart enough to be here and apparently drawing isn't a thing anymore (laughs) and like definitely figures and definitely drawing from a photograph is like not good but somehow i like made my way through it like really focusing and that was like my dream i just wanted to like make these lovely figure paintings and drawings of of people that i loved yeah yeah and and I think it's kind of common for a lot of undergraduate students. Yeah. Because I see it a lot. And then uh, and then I had kids. Like, it, my last year of... Uh, While you're still in the SAC. Mm-hmm, my last year. Okay. Yeah, I remember, like, going into a class, like, massively pregnant. That must be intense. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Well, it's weird because, like, you know, if, if I feel like a lot of communities of color, but definitely indigenous people, when you're having kids, you're in your, like, late tweens teens, early twenties, uh-huh. right? But yeah. when you're in like a professional arts career, people aren't having children, if at all, until their thirties. Yeah. So like I had my first kid when I was 23, which was a little bit late for my family. Uh-huh. And like, yeah, I just remember being like massively pregnant and going into classes. And I remember one time I brought like this big Arby sandwich uh-huh. and like majority, a lot of people were vegetarian or ate like way better than a native kid does. And so I'm sitting there eating this like greasy, like dripping meat sandwich because I'm yeah. pregnant and I need people and they're like staring at yeah. me. Judging you. And uh, I just, yeah, I don't know if they're judging me or if they're jealous of my meat sandwich. Um, but, uh, you know. It, if they're all vegetarian, they're totally judging me. <laughs> <laughs> like 100, like whatever. 100, yeah. I'm a big pregnant lady. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> no, you got you to gotta take that space. Yeah. You know what? When I had my son, I started thinking about like, okay, well, like, what am I going to tell my son about like my dad? Because I was realizing that having a dad in prison wasn't normal at that point. Um, And my dad had Mm. long since passed away. Mm. And so I I started thinking about that. And then I also like when, when I had him, like it became impossible to paint anymore. Like both like mentally, because mm. the, the focus wasn't there for the painting, but also physically just like stretching a canvas or gessoing a canvas after you've had like major abdominal surgery or like when there's a baby crying, it's like a whole, it's just hard. Yeah. Right. And, and room, your space is limited because you have like all sorts of baby crap. And so I figured <laughs> out, oh, like if, if I do um, some beadwork, like it's really portable, like, you know, like when ladies, yeah, yeah. you can see ladies on the train like knitting or crocheting. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. So, so I picked up beadwork again. And uh, when he got a little bigger, I started kind of oscillating back and forth between painting and beading. 
And um, I moved back to Las Vegas because that's where most of my family is. And um, I decided to apply to uh, the graduate program at UNLV. Mm-hmm. One, because it was like local and like kind of in my homelands, like there was familiarity there. And two, because like I I knew about Dave Hickey and I was like really excited to work with Dave Hickey, which when I look back and I'm like, we would have never worked he wasn't there though. I've heard. I've heard he he wasn't the greatest. I don't think we would have gotten along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he was so not present that you didn't actually have any real interaction with him. He wasn't working there anymore. I think he. Uh, I don't know if he retired uh, or what, but um, so his his name was just on the website, but he was not there. Yeah. Well, I, I think my assumption okay. too was that like there would be lingering similar thoughts of his, mm-hmm. and there wasn't really, but. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. UNLV was such a strange school and especially after coming from SAIC because like SAIC had like thousands of students and if you wanted to get a faculty member's time especially as an undergrad it was like near impossible uh-huh. and I even remember like asking a lot like hey what can you tell me about uh, narrative art what can you tell me about like indigenous art and no one would ever like really have any answers at SAIC because every everyone everyone's like an adjunct right I mean it could have been I, I think it might be a mix of adjuncts and a mix of just us not having a lot of faculty that have knowledge about indigenous artists at that time mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think when yeah. I look at the faculty now there's a little bit more diversity in, in knowledge about m- more artists <laughs> But UNLV was like, you know, it's like four students <laughs> in the grad program. And like you have complete access to the faculty. And and in a way, UNLV was like not enormously structured in the grad program. And it was three years long. So like you kind of were forced to have your shit together. Like it's like either you're going to waste your time and money yeah, and like not learn anything or you're going to like get really self-motivated and like do some research on your own and go out and ask people or like yeah. kind of press the faculty to help you. And that's kind of how it worked. I, at a UNLV, my graduate advisors were Mary Warner, mm-hmm. um, which we weren't super close. Emily Knurk, um, which we had some rocky times, but we got, we, we ended up being working well together. And then the, the person I think that really uh, impacted me a lot was actually Kristen Swenson, who writes for Art okay. in America. Mm-hmm. And now she teaches out in Boston. She was really knowledgeable about land art and she was really knowledgeable about black American painters. Um, So Mm -hmm. she was able to give me like a lot of reading materials and recommend artists for me to look at. And even though they weren't exactly indigenous, there was a lot of like crossover, even like with the land art too, there was like, I I could see certain things having like a different relationship with the land than maybe your typical art student. Mm -hmm. I think like I was still working a bit heavily on painting back then, but I I would make at the time I'd make these paintings with, you know, that fabric paint. I would would draw something that kind of was like a paint by number type thing using the transfer process that my dad taught me, Mm. usually like family imagery and family photographs. And I'd fill them in with that, that paint. Yeah. And uh, I remember at one point, Emily Knurk was like, that looks like beads. And I was like, Oh shit. It's been beads this whole time. Like it, this whole time, the way I approach painting, like <laughs> it's, I've been thinking about beadwork and like how you translate a complex image from reality into a pattern that can be filled out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And, and I think that's the exciting thing about like drawing too, especially uh, contour line drawing is like, you know, you're, you're drawing a person, but like your eye has to do the job of like deciding where to, where to make a line. Yeah. And it could just be where there's like dramatic, like value changes, but then like, you know, when do you make a line like right here and not make the person look wrinkly? Like when do you make it like, yeah, right underneath the eyes. Those are the hardest parts. Right. But like, they're, they're, it's like that, but like times a million when when you're drawing from a photograph, but um, it's exciting. So like when you're making a beadwork design, you have to, like, there's limitations. Like it's hard to ma- create the illusion of form because it's a little more like pattern light. Yeah. So like you have to get the right color or you have to make really smart decisions about where to create a line to create the illusion right, right. Of, of something that's going on. So at this point you switch over to beadwork then? I, I, I think at this point, and this is actually advice from Emily Knurk is don't ever let someone define what kind of art you make. Mm. And I was like, you're really right. And the way I look at materials is every time you make an artwork, you're telling a story and there are more effective and smart ways to tell a story. And part of that decision-making process should involve choosing the right material, the right medium that's more effective at telling that story. Yeah. So like, I think a good example is, uh, you know, Lisa Yuskovich, who paints the, mm-hmm. like... Her amazing paintings. Naked ladies. Yeah, like, she's talking about, like, the history of painting by white men and ad- objectification of women mm-hmm. right so if she decided to do this through performance it may not be as effective at talking about it than an oil painting would because the oil painting is like still sampling the same material that is used to make those types of artwork that she's critiquing so it kind of works i think the same way with, with the materials i decided to choose or where mm. if i want to tell like a longer detailed story that a better medium might be a graphic novel or comic book or if i want to talk about something really simple like the experience of like having to take an inhaler like Mm. or being an asthmatic like a really obvious choice would be to make an inhaler yeah 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 right yeah it it doesn't make as much sense to make the drawing and i like something about sometimes the transformation to something with physical form that that a viewer can at least imagine touching is uh much more effective at getting their empathy or getting them to relate to it than sometimes a drawing can be so so but i'm confused at this point so so what did you decide your strategy was i didn't actually actually didn't see as much many inhalers or performance from your website so i I, the sense i got was you stuck with the drawings and paintings and beadwork i definitely favor painting and drawing and soft sculptures yeah you know, I dabble in other things too, like like video and performance. And to an extent, I even consider teaching as a artistic act as well, mm-hmm. like crafting an exercise for students to do, right? Like there's, right, right. there's a lot of things going on, a lot of creative decisions made. There's like an agenda, like a idea that I want to communicate to those students, yeah, right? But there's a little less control over it because there's a ton of other people involved, right? More like a social justice art or like community artwork. Community building. Yeah. Social practice. Yeah. And I think my ideas on that are still, I'm still tackling the right words to describe it and to do it a little bit more intentionally. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. It's one of the hardest, yeah. I feel like art fields to, to try to tackle because it's so complex. Yeah, definitely. But I don't ever want to limit myself to like not making using certain materials, but like I definitely uh, am faithful to that painting and drawing and the beading. Yeah, I think the painting and drawing are a little bit more intimate or or personal. 
And then the beadwork is a little bit more specific to the public. Like it's, it's made for more people. For your beadwork, what is the, I'm just curious for you, what is that transformation or translation when you do it versus what you were learning from your neighbor? Because, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about, you know, and you mentioned that a few of the topics you're interested in is this idea of like identity and race as commodity, right? And yes. so, so I'm sort of kind of interested in how you are talking about that. And I thought the beadwork was one way that you used to talk about them for you, you know, in your mind, how does that sort of get represented through the sculptures? Um, yeah. Uh, so the beadwork is definitely about commodity. And so like one of my soft sculptures of a bottle, a medicine bottle is different from uh, indigenous artists or artisans jewelry in that it's made by a person that went to art school. Right. Yeah. And it, I understand that doesn't necessarily make it more valuable or less valuable. Right. And so there has to be a lot of thought in pricing and even the sale of those. Yeah. So when I make those objects, there's like so many layers going on. And as long as someone, the viewer hits one of those layers, I'm happy. But like there's this deep, dark thing underneath where there's like there's a health issue right? Mm. A pretty severe health issue. And like, I'm sure you, you've uh, seen the data that like people from certain communities of color are more prone to things like having mental illness, PTSD, depression, asthma, yeah. mm -hmm. heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have definitely a few chronic health conditions that could potentially define me as disabled. However, I'm fortunate enough to, or I'm privileged enough to have a life where I can like get constant uh, medical care to keep me like operating at my prime. But there are times where it's really miserable, right? And arguably, you can say the, the reason that my life is like this is because of my ethnicity and the history of how indigenous peoples have been treated in the United States of America, right? So at, at the core, there's that there's this kind of anger and sadness and like historical trauma. But as you come up, there's the silliness, there's like, there's art historical knowledge, European art historical knowledge. Uh, like when I make these, I think about Klaus Oldenburg and how they're kind of like floppy, yeah. floppy, silly, giant hamburger, right? So there's like a, a flaccid yeah, yeah. medicine bottle or there's like a flaccid gun I might make out of beads or something. And so they're, they're kind of funny. They're referential to like my education. But then like also they're lovely and they are reminiscent of indigenous jewelry making, right? Yeah. And they also like, you know, there's like that mass production of medication. And like so many of us can relate to having a medicine bottle for something in our lives. So there's all these different entry points. Some are funny, some are shiny and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And then there's something deep in that's dark. And what happens with these bottles when I put them out there, people get really excited about them. Collectors get really excited and they want to yeah. buy them. <laughs> but the, the thing about them is they take a long time to make. And I have to also be really considerate of, of indigenous artists that are actually selling beadwork for their livelihood. Right, right. I already have a full-time job. I'm making this art to make a statement, to express an idea, right? Yeah. So if someone wants to buy it, I vet them. And some people I will sell to, and most of the time I don't sell. And there's many strategies behind this. One is like it would not be sustainable because it takes a pretty long amount of time to make these freestanding 
feed structures. And two is like, I, I need to read how well they're getting the idea. Although I'm also not afraid to say if the price is right, then <laughs> I'm taking it, right? But I, I had to do like a lot of soul searching about this too. Yeah. And I think actually being an educator helps me because there's something that you learn about as an educator, if you're a good educator, I think, called cultural capital. Some people inherit money from their family. Some people inherit property. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people inherit tragic stories, right? Like a drunk dad that killed someone and like beat you and was in prison most of his life. Like this is my capital. It's so tragic, right? It's so tragic. And like Private Noel hurts for this. But Art Noel is like, I know this is entertaining. <laughs> Don't you want to buy me? Don't you want to buy me? And like wash away the yeah, guilt from all that money. Yeah, right. For, for whatever reason, you want to buy it because you're guilty, because you think yeah. indigenous people are fantastic and wonderful. And that's kind of a gross idea. But like, mm -hmm. I'm laughing like <laughs> white lady that wants to buy all of my my bead bottles. Like you don't get how you're buying me as a commodity. Or maybe they do sometimes. But like, it's funny, funny for me, at least. Right. And I'm like, whatever, I got money to make more art or to like help support other indigenous artists. So I think like when I do meet with other younger artists that are making art about their race and ethnicity, I recommend they treat it the same way. And there's definitely some people that would call this type of behavior out and say, hey, this is a form of selling out or this is trauma porn. Yeah. Right. And you're like, it might be, but you know what? This is the story. This is the capital I inherited. And in this context, in the United States, where consumerist culture existing and being healthy are like the most supreme acts of social justice, existing and being healthy, despite the systems that were put in place to make you fail, right? Yeah. So sometimes selling or profiting off of that story is absolutely justified because you're here, you're alive. Right. And you're you're telling your story. It's like it's defiant storytelling. Right. Um, so this is my opinion on like <laughs> commodity or understanding yourself as a commodity. Yeah, there's a lot to impact there. Yeah. And if people think it's gross, I absolutely respect that. And I understand. But like, you know, this behaving this way is me being successful. And like I'm doing what's emotionally important to me. I'm doing bigger things, like more social justice involving, like teaching other students about indigenous art making, yeah. uh, mentoring other artists that are people of color and kind of find it hard to fit into these systems that are built for predominantly white male artists to succeed in. Yeah. So anyhow. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like there could be like a whole separate discussion about like, you know, how does that exist, right? You know, the complicated system that allows, as you're calling it, you know, trauma porn, also owning one's story and taking hold of it and taking sort of agency over your your story mm -hmm. in a way that, that empowers you, but also becomes part of the system, right? And every, I think every every group of people who was at one point and still are, you know, under a system of oppression has had to kind of figure out what that means for themselves, right? And every person has their own, you know, way of looking at it. Yeah, I think... First of all, I, I want to recognize one of the things that you said, like taking ownership of this story. Like I've had the opportunity to like talk about this in, in writing before, but like 
I think a good example of that is Emmett Till's mother. Mm -hmm. When he was murdered and she made this decision that she wanted to open casket and she wanted people to take images of it. Like, yeah, as a, a black woman during that time period, she had so little power. But this one thing she had the authority to do. And there was a reason for it. And it was really important, right? Yeah. So many years later, when we have Dana Schutz deciding to paint that, <laughs> Dana Schutz didn't yeah. ask the Till family or anything. It, she just decided to paint it. Yeah. And so that's like infringing on someone's ownership of a story. It, it would have been a different story if she came to the family and said, hey, can I paint Emmett? And I, I'm pretty sure they probably would have said yes, in all likelihood, but she just did it. She just took ownership of that image of that boy's body. She took away the power of Emmett Till's mom of uh, showing that image. So it's just kind of like, if you don't take ownership of your story and decide how you're going to share it, someone else is going to take it from you, especially if it's a really interesting story. I don't think Dana just could have walked out of that in any situation unscathed <laughs> to be honest i mean i i really think that like i'm not saying that white artists can't talk about things like that like things that concern race or identity that are not of their own yeah yeah but i do think it's very important to ask permission and do your research yeah do your damn research yeah she didn't she didn't she didn't no yeah so <laughs> Um, well, we all we all could figure that out, right? So, yeah. But she's doing fine, you know. Like, there's all you know. I, I, it didn't hurt her that bad. If you, yeah, I know people are like, she's out there succeeding. Oh, like, like you know, the the silent majority is scared to talk out, but just like she's fine. Jana should seems to be selling paintings. You know, yeah, she's fine. I'm not worried about Dana Schutz. I love Dana Schutz's painting. I think it's like exciting and thrilling. I definitely could have handled that situation better. I try to be forgiving though and not try to like linger on things too hard. I think that's like an asset I got from Grandma Margaret. Like she's an old Indian lady and it's like, I don't know if it was like an old cultural thing or if it's like from her being defeated from being put in boarding schools. And that, that's how we ended up being related. She was at the same boarding school as my dad. So he trusted her to take care of me. Or just, or just age, right? And experience, you realize, like, it's not worth your time to remain angry, right? Or, or also the care. Yeah, I think that it's exactly just kind of like that. Like, you know, what's going to be is going to be you have, like, limited control over that situation. And, like, I, I think that, like, although Dana Schutz's decision to make that painting was unfortunate and potentially harmful, like, I'm like whatever like people people make mistakes hopefully she doesn't make that one again <laughs> just like like what's the purpose of of like staying mad about it when i could put that energy towards something else not that being angry isn't like a valid emotion to have and like yeah. feel and recognize but like there's a million other emotions i would have and i think like also if you step way back just understanding that none of us exists within a vacuum and when you start having this feeling where like you really hyper-focus in on individuals, it's still kind of a colonial way of thinking where we're, if you step back and say, hey, my existence is dependent upon like millions of other people, you know, from like the person that helps me get coffee to the people that like take away my trash and like salt the roads and the person that teaches my children, like 
all of these individuals are super important to my successful existence in this society. And Mm -hmm. like Dana Schutz in some way plays some role in like our existence in the arts professional world. And that's okay. That's fine. She's got to do her thing. And like, if she didn't do that thing, like how long till we would have had a conversation about this? I'm sure not that long. Not that long. (laughs) But like, it's, it's still, yeah, it's still like, there's a benefit to the action, even though it was like not the greatest action because we're talking about it, right? Yeah, I think it was one of the more benign actions relative to other things that have happened that I think someone put it really well. It's like what Dana Shust did drew some lines and where people stood in the art world, right? And and revealed that. And I think that was sort of like a important thing that, that she did, right? Like there's all these, I think her the issue for what Dana Schultz did was complicated because it's like, it's a Whitney Biennial and then the two um, curators were, were artists of color and then white people were like freaking out because like, how do we discuss this? Because, you know, the, the curators were artists of color and, and so no, they can't be racist. Although, you know, like it's just like all these like things that, that, that are part of this nuanced conversation of race and identity these you know for us these clear ideas that no race or people is a monolith and there's a wide variety of ways of, of thinking and also you know a system itself can be oppressive and racist and cause individuals of all types to also reenact those same things and I think the, all that discussion around it was sort of ended up being this sort of positive conversation. I think absolutely you said it super well but I think like at least my approach it is, I was constantly trying to look at it like that, just like step back and be like, you know, what's, what's the bigger picture here? And it, it makes me like so much less angry <laughs> at the world. Yeah. So um, I hope this is a healthy way to look at everything, <laughs> but you know, we'll see. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, like you said, I think, cause we look sort of time back to what you were saying earlier, you know, your role also as an indigenous person and, and teaching this sort of art history from your perspective and you having that specialized viewpoint, you know, I think that's really important because that allows for people to also see things in different ways, right? And see things in different perspectives. And, you know, I, you know, I think about just art history in general and how, like, me... When I teach it, I also, I try really hard to kind of think about being aware of the canon and and then kind of making different strategic moves in terms of how things are presented or how they're talked about that comes with this sort of different and varying perspectives, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think you're talking about, you know, teaching as a sort of act, right? Teaching as, as a way of resistance. And I think that kind of exists Mm -hmm. in that form. And I'm curious, like, you know, you've been teaching for, it looked like at least over a decade, right? And and I'm curious mm-hmm. how exactly for you, you know, what role does teaching have in terms of your own artwork, right? How does it influence your own work? I, I think there's so many ways that it does. So like an example, like you live, you're on the West Coast, right? Right now, right now I'm in China. Oh, Nice. So I guess I guess I'm in the east, right? <laughs> You're very east. <laughs> but I'm west so, of you, though. I'm I'm either west of you or really, really, really far east. <laughs> um, in the United States and a lot of the Western states, it's like legally required that you teach certain things about Indigenous history. So the Trail oh, of I Tears. I didn't know for- that. 
Yeah. So something, uh, Trail of Tears, or sometimes it's called the Trail of Death and Tears, yeah. uh, is required content in like Oregon and Nevada, right? Mm. So every quarter that I teach at, in the Chicago area, there's always this particular artwork I show by an artist named Edgar Heap of Birds. And it, it's artwork that is signage that refers to the Trail of Tears and going to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And every time I show it, uh, you know, the students have a really difficult time with it, uh, with understanding the historical reference. And I always ask, you know, and this happened yesterday, uh, how, how many of you have ever heard of something called the Trail of Tears? And usually like out of a class of 33, maybe one or two students raise their hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's such a, I think it's such a fundamental piece of history um, and American history and understanding why one of the many reasons that why America is like so wealthy and powerful is because it's built on, you know, this stolen land and it's built on slave labor, right? It's, it's early years and like really describing and, and like making it clear, like what happened during the trail of tears, I think is something so important. So like, I, like, I stopped the class and kind of explained what happened. Like, have you realized when you look around at the state of Illinois, that there's no, Native American reservations, right? Mm. And when you look east, there's very few, if any. And this is the reason why, because of the Trail of Tears. They previously signed treaties with all these Native Americans and said, hey, you know, we're going to cease war activities if you stay on this piece of land. Mm. But then the American government decided they're going to renege on that, forcefully move everyone to Oklahoma. If you don't want to go, too bad, bang, you're dead. If you're too tired and too sick to keep up with us, bang, you're dead, or we're just going to leave you to die in the elements. If your baby cries too much, Thing, the baby's dead, right? It was really yeah. awful. A forced removal of people. Mm-hmm. And so when you look around, that history is staring you in the face, right? Yeah. And I'm at a weird point because I'm like a late in life child. So my dad, the person that had me, was subjected to those really violent, terrible boarding schools where they were forcefully removed from their families. Like mm. um, I'm told that it took five people five men to pull him out of his mother's arms to force him into the boarding school and what was the, what was the history of this forcible removal so this is something called have you ever heard of indian boarding schools or have you heard of residential schools from canada uh yeah that was in the news uh like this past few years but uh, could you could you talk a little bit just quickly about the history of that <laughs> Yeah. So it's part of some of the Indian policies uh, from the United States government. They had this theory, sometimes referred to making apples, kill the savage, Mm. save the man. Mm. So they had this theory, if they forcibly removed the children from the homes and put them into contracted church schools, boarding schools, they would teach them how to be white. So like they forcibly removed children they wouldn't allow them to speak their language. They cut their hair. They put them in different clothes. Mm. They taught them how to do sort of like subservient jobs, like the women to do domestic labor, men to do kind of like ranch hand type stuff. And a lot of children were abused in every way imaginable. Uh, a lot of children just disappeared. No one ever heard from them again. And so that's the Canadian residential school system copied off of how the United States Indian boarding school system was. Mm. We're hearing a lot in the news about the Canadian residential schools where they're finding mass graves of the children. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it was also like another strategy when it came to like land theft and other sort of exerting authority over Native Americans where like 
if the government took your child and then the government wanted you to move off your land, it's a lot harder to say no to the government when they literally have your child, right? So they're like blackmailing. Um, They'll take the kids and then force the parents off. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also like is a very intentional way to erase culture, yeah. right? Erase like how a certain people make art, which is visual, which is singing, which is yeah. like represented, you know, in their clothing or like their cultural belief yeah. systems. So I think when we, we do usually teach about this or reference it in most kids' schools, sometimes through K through 12, in my experience, but like, it's usually talked about in a way that is something that happened really long ago, right? Yeah. And so because my dad had me later in life, I think a lot of people, a lot of people that are making art, indigenous people, like maybe their grandmother or grandfather had been like that last generation that was forcibly mm. put into those boarding schools in these really traumatic circumstances. So there's like, there's a connection to it, but it's, I don't know if it's the same as mine, because when you're raised by someone that's been that profoundly traumatized, they end up profoundly traumatizing you. And so when I hear my students like, and and see their lack of knowledge about these things that are intentionally not taught because they're embarrassing and they're really horrific. I'm like, you know, that you have to know this yeah. because, you know, that what's that saying? Like if uh, history repeats itself, right? Yeah, so yeah, one yeah. has to know this. And like, I feel like when you think about it and you think about like a, a generation or two ago, they were doing this, the, the pain and trauma. Yeah, it's not that long ago. Yeah, it's still like very potent in people in these communities. So like when people are like, well, I'm white and I can't like make art or be successful because of identity politics and all these people like are prioritizing it. Yeah. I'm like the, the people making art right now, like barely have their like emotions together and like are stable enough to be making art. You better damn well give them some priority yeah. to share their story and their voice. Yeah. So one, it's not forgotten, but two, it's just like, it's just fairness. It's like ethical. Right. Yeah. But also, like, whenever I hear that, um, I feel like that's just like people like having their eyes having blinders on because like, yeah, I, f- I feel like I feel like, um, you know, I go you read through Art Forum, I've, you know, you read through Eflux, you read through all these different news sites and they do a really good job making it seem like the art world is really diverse you know yeah but then you just look at you just look at the galleries you just look at the the auction sale prices you you go to any art fair and like it's not there yeah i agree absolutely i mean it is it, it's, it's like cheap cultural capital to write to write a review or promote these ideas of diversities and all these elite press releases but like to actually like you know support an artist sell a show have a gallery that actually pushes for for actual diversity, that's that's the work that they don't want to do, right? Or or even just white people just wanting to buy more white, boring artworks, right? Like how yeah. much, you know, do we need another like Pollock, you know, to set another record sale, right? Or another Andy Warhol to have a record sale, resell, resold, like and resold. You're like my devil's advocate. Like I I <laughs> I, I definitely agree with like this this pessimistic perception of it, but like. My response yeah. as an educator when I see so many kids and so many adults too, will, willfully with blinders or sometimes just unknowing what, what education they've missed out on. 
Like it makes me want to make art more. And those beadworks mm, 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 are like mm, such mm. a good example where it's like, it's like an SNL skit where it's like kind of silly and attractive and shiny. Yeah, yeah. And if you linger there really long, you might understand something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might understand something on a deeper level, hopefully. And if not, you are like my joke. Like, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so like, this is, this is my, you know, my, my intention is I want to be like, you can be critical when you're a little more silly about it or when you're a little yeah, more yeah, um, yeah. affectionate about it. I don't know. Or like, I think even like the image or the object of a medicine bottle is like so universal. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately that yeah. like, it's, it's just like everyone can access that object and has like a history with it. And like, they'll stay a little longer and listen a little longer just because they didn't know the joke was coming. Yeah. Yeah. Or they didn't know the story was there. And like, that's, I mean, that's how I look at my art is that like, it's a little more gentle and a little more sneaky. It's not like slap mm-hmm. you in the face, like, look what you did to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm traumatized because of you, right? It's, it, it, it just kind of sneaks up on you. And I think, like, of course, that's not the only way that education, like, inspires me or, or is what related to my practice. But I think that's a really big way is I can just, like, see my identity was erased from these students' yeah. education. And I am there. I am like an indigenous woman laying it down. I'm all, you know what else I'm doing too? Like one thing that super pisses me off as uh, an arts professional and indigenous person is like, when you go to art school in the United States of America, what are some of the first things they teach you? They teach you how to draw with charcoal, pencil. They teach you how to paint with oil on a canvas. And you know what? Those are European methods of art making. Are they teaching you beadwork? Not really. Are they teaching you any history about American art? Like how many students can tell me the history of ledger paper art, Mm. right? How many students can tell me the history or reasoning for something called the lazy stitch, right? Yeah. Like how many people can like talk about indigenous basket making or like regalia making? Like none of them. These are all really important indigenous contemporary and traditional art forms that we don't teach squat about. And so like, I just like to be there teaching it. Like, this is one of my longer term goals is to actually like teach more classes that are focused on indigenous art making or indigenous art history of the Americas. Yeah. Uh, because it's like shameful, shamefully missing from like all of our curriculums. Yeah. But you can hear, I'm like very excited about it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's good, right? Because I think like, like this sort of personal histories and having a chance to also tell it, but also I think recognizing like, the sort of alternative ways of, of, of how knowledge is passed down as a legitimate form of knowledge, right? I think, you know, people, especially with all these like Silicon Valley and optimization of, of everything, right? That there's this sort of one way to kind of, for, for knowledge to kind of exist. But, you know, I think there's a lot of these things that knowledge is passed through orally that just kind of get forgotten. Right. You know, I, I think a lot mm-hmm. about also like, you know, something, something as simple as like recipes, right? Like a lot of people, they don't have their recipes is sort of like in their heads, right. The mom and dad, they just mm-hmm. like know how much salt to put in, how much spices to put in. And those are totally legitimate forms of knowledge that are just not written down. Right. And yeah, 
that also that are also erased. And then they're not valued. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and they're not valued because because it doesn't bring money, because it's not written down, it doesn't fall under the accepted norms of how knowledge should be archived and transmitted and so forth, you know. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I think it's kind of like a funny thing about working in the institution of higher education when you see the flaw in only measuring education or knowledge through degrees yeah. and through classes taken or credits earned when like a woman with no degree, an old elderly like Mexican lady with no degree can be an exceptionally knowledgeable person yeah. and know a lot of cultural history and know a lot of like you're saying like recipes and like other yeah. forms of art making and like they're just not appreciated. They might not get funding, even the way our arts funding organizations are built. Like they want to see your resume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They want to see your artist statement. They want to could see. They want to see how well you can write, right? Yeah. And like the, these other people, we we don't value them just because that's the way that colonial culture has taught us to measure education, and it's wrong. Yeah. Right. And I think that's why I like working with first generation college students, and that's also why I like like it fits really well working with a lot of students that are like second first generation immigrants like i i I do a fair job at like recognizing how wise they are yeah right like that they have knowledge that i don't have and it may not be academic knowledge but that doesn't make it any less valuable yeah yeah i mean that's what i i enjoy about teaching as well sort of like they're doing things i just am not part of right like right now like i am totally out of the whole tiktok thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right but there's a, like a whole world there and like it's probably good for you yeah it's probably good but like you know i was like reading like oh like people are using tiktok to like and instead of google right and i'm just like oh okay like i'm just not part of that <laughs> I'm, it is getting to the point where sometimes you can find information much more rapid yeah, um, I've heard about that. On TikTok <laughs> and then Google. There's so many times where I'm like, what is this story they're talking about? And I'll go Google it and I can't find anything. Yeah. But then like, it's kind of creepy because sometimes you have to be careful because, you know, people have these moments to speak so quickly. Yeah. And they'll say things that like are, are maybe kind of true, but they don't have enough time to like give you a full context of the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember yeah. there was like this one a while ago. I don't remember the TikTok guy's name, but he was like a black guy with dreads and he has a really nice smile. Yeah. And that's the reason I followed him. Yeah. And he usually talks, <laughs> he's critical about American history. And there was this one time he made a video about like Native Americans owning black slaves. And then I looked at the comment okay. section and it was like a ton of people that were absolutely furious at Native Americans. Uh-huh. And like, I was like, oh man, this guy, like, th- there's like, over 500 different tribes in the United States. Definitely not all of them kept black slaves because it would have been impossible. And some of them could have ethically been like, that's not cool. But like, also there's like a really big history of Native Americans keeping each other as slaves. Like the tribes I'm from, like I'm Klamath, Modoc, and Paiute. And the Klamaths, and I think the Modocs used to keep Paiutes as slaves. Mm. So like I'm the descendant of the owners of slaves and the actual slaves, but their slave system was not the same as like colonial slave systems, right? Like you, you can um, upgrade your slave to part of your family, like in <laughs> that slave system, right? Like, like no questions asked, right? But then there's still like lingering things, like little like yeah. internal racism things, but it's just like, come on, like. You're you're stirring the pot, and you're you're going to get a bunch of comments and action on this post, but it's kind of harmful, and it's like getting yeah. people mad, 
right? So yeah. it's kind of, I think, and so many young yeah. people are looking at TikTok, they go there and they get like mad really fast. It, in some ways, it's starting to remind me of Twitter a little bit. Like you should just go to Twitter to be mad, I feel like, yeah. to yell and complain about things. But that's what I used my Twitter for. I used it to be crazy. And then I was like, you know, I don't want to yell and be mad at things. Like, let's do something else. <laughs> it's not worth It's not worth the energy, I feel like. <laughs> it really isn't. We all need to take a break. I know. Except for from cake videos and bunny videos. Exactly. I know. That's what it should all be about. Yeah. So I think we've talked about most of the things I set out to talk about. Is there anything that you want to kind of bring back or that I'm missing? Um, I don't know. I feel really good about our conversation. I don't think there's anything that's missing. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You want to um, hand out some plugs, any events coming up, any shows coming up? You know, what's your Instagram handle? I have a few shows going on. Um, so I'm in one exhibition at Dominican University called Tending Tender. It was created by Jennifer Monbach, who's a really awesome artist. So you can check out some of my medicine bottles there. I'm also in an exhibit called Maternal Perspectives at Lake Forest College with some other really amazing female artists that are also parents. Mm. That one's really wild because I'm in there with like some old professors from SAIC. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was like so long ago. (laughs) I will be having a residency at Northwestern University in April. Um, uh, The Center for Native Futures hooked me up with that, which is a really cool Chicago-based organization Uh that helps helps center and uplift Native American artists in the Chicago area. Yeah. We're going to be having a location opening up in downtown Chicago soon. So keep an eye out for that. I think we'll be open by the time okay. Chicago's Expo Chicago uh, is opening up. So those are two cool ones. Almost all of my handles on social media are at Noelle's Broke. So N-O-E-L-L-E-S Broke. Mm. Someday I may not be broke, but I'm still kind of broke. <laughs> Not as broke as I used to be. So if you want to find me anywhere, I'm always at Noelle's Broke. Is that is that your like Venmo and Cash App handle too? I don't actually. I think my, my Venmo might be like Garcia.Noelle. But if, if anyone wants to make direct payments to me, reach, reach out to me via my website, NoelleGarcia.com. But don't look at the website too long because it's really outdated. But you can send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, I think, I don't know. So I was looking at your CV and I saw that you went to Acre in 2014. I was also Acre in 2014, but I don't think we overlapped because I think they had like two or three sessions. So I I don't remember what session you were. I think it was session four. Yeah. But I mean, I don't remember, I don't recall you. So I mean, I I, I don't think my memory's gone that bad yet. So. Maybe we just didn't hang out. I mean, I'm kind of like, when I'm not teaching and I'm not being interviewed on an awesome podcast, I am Mm. a very quiet person that stays to myself. (laughs) So it's possible we just didn't hang out because I'm like a recluse. (laughs) That's why I force myself to go to artist residencies. Yeah, It's like I schedule myself every other year. I have to go to a residency to like force myself in an enclosed area to talk to people. You don't sound That's you don't sound like a recluse. I'm getting better at it. I think like uh. maybe the combination of motherhood and like the pandemic has just made me like have less fucks to give and I'm just like gonna like yeah. be loud and ridiculous. We'll see. <laughs> 
But yeah, Acre. Yeah, Acre was fun. I think it's changed a lot because when I in 2014, there was like there were a lot of buildings though being built and dirt roads being mm-hmm. prepped and uh, studio spaces being built. Yeah. Well, they've changed leadership. I think when we went, one of the co-founders, the co-founders were Dana, I can't remember Dana's last name, and Emily Green. Yeah, yeah. Both of you are really awesome. I'm so embarrassed. Uh, Bassett, Dana Bassett. She she is part remember, of I'm, Bad at Sports, right? Yes, yes. And I think and I think Nick Wiley was also... Oh, yeah. Nick was awesome. Yeah. I met up with Nick like a few years ago because he's, he was in San Francisco. He was... I don't know where he is right now, but I happened to be in San Francisco and I was like, oh, he's like some, he's either man, art manager there for some, some organization. But yeah. Yeah. I think he got married to move up to California, but I believe he moved back to Chicago for a little while. I don't know if he's still here, mm. but really great group of people that the people that manage it, that took over have a different vibe. So I haven't gone back. Mm. I volunteered, I think in like 2000. 17 or something like that yeah where i was kind of like the mom staff like if someone got stung by a bee i helped them or you know like okay. i'd make snacks and stuff like that I would, yeah I'd, yeah that yeah job. but yeah it's 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 a different group of people and i don't know if it's just because i'm old and grouchy but it's or maybe it's just because i've been there so many times i want to try some other residencies out maybe oh yeah. plug for another residency that i have nothing to do with other than i was there once is a. Uh, U Cross in Wyoming is a real Yeah, I've heard good things about that. Yeah. It's really beautiful and just like super well organized and super inviting. And like yeah, yeah. they pay you to go there. Like you don't have to pay anything. It's I think like it's funded by like old an old oil tycoon. So like probably, probably I remember yeah. when I got accepted, I was like, is it ethical for me to go here as an indigenous <laughs> person? And then I was like, No, I think the oil tycoon owes me money. Probably. <laughs> probably. He probably owes us all money. So we should all apply. <laughs> Anyways, it's a good residency. You should apply. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, there, there's a bunch that I've always wanted to go. I, I, I went on my own like residency hopping a few years ago. But What's your favorite one? I think uh, Acres Food was, I think, one of the best. Um, yeah. But I think my favorite was Willapa Bay. In Washington State. We'll have to check it out. Willapa? Yeah, Willapa Bay Air. It's like run by this this lady from Seattle. I think she made her money like doing law for like all those tech companies in Seattle. And then I think she, her sister was into the arts and then she wanted to do something with her sister. And so she founded this art residency. And so like, it's just they don't they don't pay you, but it's free, and then they cook all your food for you, and that you um, the only requirement is just you have dinner with everyone together, but then otherwise they kind of let you do whatever you want. And that was my first time out in the Pacific Northwest, and it was just like beautiful, like it, yeah, it, every, the whole area was just like amazing. And it's near this place called Oyster Bay. I love oysters, so oh, it was yeah. like and. Yeah, I just I really I really had a special time there. All right, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna apply. That's a hot tip, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Let me know if you ever I don't know need anything or ever around in Chicago, we can like grab a cup of tea or something. Yeah, totally. I mean, I know a lot of people in Chicago. Like, then my brother also lives in Chicago. So during all my residency. Oh, cool. Hoppings. I always stop by Chicago because I go from the East Coast to the West Coast, and there'd always be a stop there. Oh yeah, I mean, 
know if you ever buy. I'll buy you a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, we could we could figure something out. All right. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and leave because the the children yeah. and dog are getting restless. I understand. <laughs> thank thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed it. I was happy to finally get to talk to you, and I, th- I thought our conversation was it went really interesting places that I was happy to explore. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. All right. Bye. Bye bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.